This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the Staple Singers, and it's hard to interrupt this song. And this single, well, one of the most famous of the Staple Singers. And if you ever get a chance, just go on YouTube and watch Mavis do her thing with Pop Staples. It's a beautiful thing. And we thought we'd play this song by the Staple Singers, not as the story of a song, which we love to do here on this show, but because the story we're going to hear is about a stapler. And not just any ordinary stapler. Here's Jesse. A candy apple red swing line stapler plays a prominent role in Office Space, a 1999 dark comedy by Mike Judge about a fictitious Texas software company and the everyday people who work there. I believe you have my stapler. One of those office dwellers is Milton Wadams, played by one of today's most prolific character actors, Stephen Root. He's an invisible nuisance that must be tolerated because he's a human on the planet, but there, he takes up space and, and he's, he's not a bad human being to them. I don't consider Milton over the top at all. I think it's one of my subtlest roles, actually. Even though it's a, a big character, it's, it's done really small. Milton is an overweight, aging nerd with prescription glasses so thick that you can't see his eyes. I don't care if they lay me off either because I told, I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time, then, then, I, then I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. And, and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they were married. But then they switched. He devotes his work days to guarding his red swing line against his boss, who is constantly moving his desk and stealing his stapler. Hi, Milton. And, but What's I, happening? I said, Mil, did, we're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we, I, I was told uh, I could have not, some new people coming it, in, and no, we need all the space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in, just go ahead and it, pack up your it, stuff it, and move it down there, but, no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was told okay. I could stay... Excuse me, yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler. But Milton Wadams eventually gets his revenge against the smug boss who takes his stapler away. I set the building on fire. By setting the building on fire. Now, Office Space barely earned back the $10 million it cost News Corp's 20th Century Fox to make the film. But in 2000, when it came out on video, it was clear that the movie was reaching a particular audience. Cubicle-dwelling computer programmers. For months, Swingline fielded demands for that red stapler pouring in by phone and email. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. There was just a slight little problem. Swingline didn't make bright red staplers. The one in the movie was custom painted by a prop designer. When real-life Milton Wadhamses found out they couldn't buy one from the manufacturer, they simply made their own creating a thriving black market on eBay for swing lines that were simply spray-painted red. Then, finally, three years after the red stapler buzz began, Swingline began selling a real red stapler, its basic 747 model, now with a new paint job. Office Space has turned out to be one of the more effective, if unusual, recent examples of product placement in films, now, the movie didn't just spark sales for Swingline, it invented the whole idea of a bright red stapler to begin with. Now, the sleepy Midwestern company that made the first top-loading stapler more than 60 years ago has discovered a new approach to marketing office products to younger generations. Best of all, the Office Space movie plug didn't cost Swingline a single dime. 
Through the magic of product placement, it's now common for advertisers to have their brands mentioned or used in feature films. Terms of these deals are among Hollywood's most closely guarded secrets. These days, they typically involve advertising or cross-promotion swaps worth millions of dollars. In Swingline's case, though, it was sheer luck, not money, that brought it into office space. I believe you have my stapler. Swingline executives didn't even recognize the marketing opportunity when the movie's producers approached them back in 1999. The company figured its mainstay customers were unlikely to trade up and declined the pitch. Still, the writer and director of Office Space, Mike Judge, best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead, was determined to keep the red stapler in his film. Swingline did not stand in his way. The new product is a big deal in the stapler community, says Clark Allen, a 29-year-old Dallas web consultant and host of VirtualStapler.com, where people exchange stories about staplers and stapler injuries. The red staplers have quickly become the most popular item on the Swingline website, which is the only place you can buy them, $29 a piece. And that is the story of a stapler. Perhaps the most famous stapler there ever was. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. But then they switched from the Swingline to the Boston stapler, but I kept my Swingline stapler because it didn't bind up as much, and, and I kept the staples for the Swingline stapler. Okay, Milton. And, oh, no, it's not okay because if they make me, if they, if they take my, my stapler, then I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'll set the building on fire. And great job as always, Jesse. And we got to order a couple of those swing line staplers. The red ones get on it. And stapler, virtualstapler.com, stapler injuries, stapler stories. Jesse, I think that's a segment. I think that's a segment. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. We sublime stuff, silly stuff. We do it all here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. And please sign up for the podcast. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and tell friends about what we're doing. If you're sick of the yelling and the screaming, the politics, the downers, and just, well, sick of it all, tune into our show for a little uplift, for a little laugh. You'll learn, you'll laugh, you'll think, you'll cry. That's our goal here. Make you feel something. Sometimes you'll learn something. And again, sometimes you'll just get a chuckle out of what we do, we hope. Ouramericannetwork.org to learn more. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, looking to advance public policy that helps grow small businesses into bigger ones, helping communities, Main Street particularly, across this great country. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of a guy in Grand Rapids, Michigan, named Sid Jensma Jr., that you don't likely know, but you're glad to have met him. 
Today in the United States, about 85% of all the wells in the continental United States are not owned by major oil companies. They're owned by independent oil companies like mine sitting right here. The other 15% of the wells are owned by the major oil companies. However, the number roughly is that the 85% of the wells owned by the smaller companies produce about 50% of the oil in the United States. The 15% of the wells owned by the major oil companies produce about 50% of the oil. So it's, you, you can see the major oil companies own the wells that are producing more oil per day per well, and the independents own the little ones. Except when they don't. We're looking at a certain area in Utah and a certain play, and I got a call right sitting at my desk here in Grand Rapids from um, Chevron, with its annual revenue of $141 billion and almost 52,000 employees, while Sid has 45 employees. The guy said, hey, we've got 80,000 acres of land in Utah. We saw you're working over there. You want to buy it? And I remember saying to them, him, no, I got 40,000 acres on my own. I don't need any more. But what do you have? You might as well ask, once you're already on the phone, well, Sid bought what Chevron had. I got what was then the largest oil discovery in the continental United States in 30 years. It's called the Covenant Field. But this epic discovery from a small oil man wasn't anything like where Sid's story starts. His family was even smaller from the world's point of view. My father was an immigrant from Dokkum, Friesland in the Netherlands. He immigrated here with his entire family in 1920. World War I had occurred. It was a bitter war. Netherlands was neutral, but World War I was very hard on the Netherlands, and my grandfather was 56 years old after the end of the war and just decided he didn't want his kids to grow up facing that kind of uncertainty. The war ended with a truce, basically, which resulted finally in the Second World War. And my grandfather in 1919 decided, I'm gonna get out of here and made all the arrangements and came. And they were sponsored in those days by somebody. They were sponsored by a family in Iowa with the idea that the kids are going to start to work on the farm. My dad was 20 and I couldn't speak any English, but he was not interested in farming. He was an entrepreneurial guy, had done things in the Netherlands. My grandfather had two grocery stores in Dalkum, Friesland, and my father is the one who would drive with a team of horses to get the supplies for the stores, and my dad had been working in the stores since he was 11. He, he quit school at 11 and had to work in the store. So working out on a farm didn't work for him. He decided to go to Chicago and he became a vacuum cleaner salesman. He sold vacuum cleaners to immigrants. In those days, all the immigrant groups went to their little areas. The Italians were over here, the Dutch were over there, and this and that. And so um, they all knew where they were and he worked all of them. And this was a time, you know, when we take it so for granted that we all have a vacuum cleaner, but in those days, electricity was just getting popular. It was just really getting around. My dad also eventually sold washing machines because the woman, without the washing machine, had the scrub board and the sink, you know, and scrubbing, and then it had to hang out and dry. 
and the washing machine could fit in the apartment. You'd hook it up, it'd work. You'd have the ringer on the side that you'd ring it out and it just made their life easier. What is so common for us today wasn't then. And the appliances were sold by the local electric distribution company. It wasn't a Sears or anything like that. It was the electric company was trying to figure out how do I get my product used? How do I get people using more electricity? And it was get them using vacuum cleaners and everything else. And then my dad came to Grand Rapids and must have corresponded that, hey, it's good here. Uh, mind you, they were Dutch, and Grand Rapids was very Dutch. Lived in the uh, YMCA here. Told me, if you ever have to live somewhere, live in the YMCA, it's nice people. And of course, the YMCAs don't do that anymore, but there was a time when they were really a Christian organization that part of their mission was helping people get their feet on the ground. And then uh, he started buying his lots. And then in 1929, lost all the lots because uh, that was the um, depression. Lost it, but gradually picked them up and went into the building business. And that's my earliest memory of him. He was a builder who built small houses on lots. And then Sid said that his dad got into the oil business in Michigan. And I had to make sure I heard him right. Michigan, the mecca of apples and blueberries. I thought all the oil came from places like Texas and the Dakotas. The Albion Scipio field in Albion, Michigan is the largest oil field east of the Mississippi in the United States of America. Now it's all plugged out today, it's not producing any more oil, but it produced 150 million barrels of oil. And so the oil business, if you're looking for oil and living on what you find, you have to keep finding it because what you find, you produce and it's depleted and you have to find something else to produce. And so there have been about 16,000 wells, I believe, drilled in the state of Michigan. And uh, the thing about an oil well is that when you drill it, you have this great big drilling rig there and it makes quite a bit of noise and, and it, you're drilling this well, but it only takes two, three, four weeks to drill a well and then what you're left with is a small little section of pipe coming out of the ground. It's called a Christmas tree, upon which sometimes you put a pumping unit, which goes up and down. But it takes a very small amount of land. They're always out in the country somewhere. And, and after a year or two, the, the trees are starting to grow again. And you just don't see where they are. I mean, the people in the state of Michigan or Illinois or many of the other oil states that have trees like we have here, all this deciduous forest, they don't see all the oil and gas wells that are there. Yeah, but they're there. As Sid's dad would have him find out. June of 1959, I got my driver's license, and he said, you got your driver's license? I said, yep. He said, you're going to start driving to Delton, Michigan, and uh, you're going to start cleaning the oil wells and painting and doing all the work you have to do with your brother, who at that time was 14 years old. So you had a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old driving down to do work every day. That was a beautiful experience. He and I fought a lot. My mother would pack the lunch. We'd have at least a gallon of iced tea, some of which would always end up down somebody's neck or you know, if we had troubles with each other. But one of the people that worked there showed me how an oil well worked. It went up and down to pump. And on, at the very bottom of the stroke, you could feel the ball hit the seat 3,000 feet down and, and you'd hit tink and it would come up and then go down tink and fill up again and I thought well that's pretty cool 
and I worked out in the oil field almost every summer while I was in college. I was the first person to go to higher education. My dad had a sixth grade education. I went to Calvin College, lived at home the whole time. That's how you did it then. Very handy. Your mother cooked for you and did the laundry too. Cheaper and what a blessing. You don't realize it. And then I loved business from the time I was a kid. And my dad taking me out on the building sites, I, I would just talk to him about things. And he was willing to talk business. I just came to realize that by using your head, you could make money. And my dad said to me, I want you to know that I've made more money since I started using my head and I quit doing the physical labor. So he actually organized it all and hired the, 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 the people to put in the foundation, the framers, and he was the general contractor. But he, he said to me, I've made more money and you will too if you figure out how to use your head and work on things. So I got out of U of M. University of Michigan. I got a master's degree of finance and accounting from U of M and that was in August of 1966. And I was born uh, when my father was 43. So that meant when I got out of college, my dad was in his mid to late 60s and uh, ready to get out of business. And put young Sid, then 24 years old, in charge. And when we come back, more of this America Dreamer story more of Sid Jansma's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Put in your email, and we'll send you the five best stories of the week, and they'll be in text form so you can read them, or in audio form so you can listen to them. And that's ouramericannetwork.org. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return to Sid Jansba's story. And when we left off, his father was about to put him in charge of the family oil company at the age of 24. We had two offices. Um, my dad had the one with the windows, and I had the one with the door. And he had to walk past my desk, say hi, sit over there, and every conversation he had, it was we were basically 15 feet apart. I heard him, and he heard me, and. So I started really working out in the oil field, but my dad did not explore for oil and gas. His idea was buying oil wells from the big companies when they got ready to sell them. An oil well starts out at a nice rate and then it goes down because there's only a certain amount of oil in the reservoir and when you produce it, it's gone. And when it's gone, the oil well will still produce a barrel or two a day, but it won't produce 100 barrels a day. We had a whole lot of little wells. We had about 60 little wells and that would pay you a salary. So that's what he did and it was a good business to do. And so therefore I started buying wells, but it became very competitive in those days because in the late 60s, Wall Street was starting to get the idea that we can get in the oil business by getting next to some people and, and letting them find these wells and we'll put up all the money. And so I was bidding against people that had bigger money. 
So I couldn't get all the stuff I wanted, and then I started thinking, I guess I'm going to have to find my own wells. And that was it. I guess I'm going to have to find my own wells, and uh, how do you do it? Will you understand geology, engineering, none of which I was. So I found a geologist who would talk to me, and he would give me certain ideas, and then I'd work on those ideas myself. I ended up going out in the field and leasing the farmers myself. Their land for exploration. I did all of it. When I drilled my first well, about 1968 or 69, there was a dry hole. But by getting out in the field and talking, I made a connection with a landowner. His name was Gustav von Ries. He was a Swedish immigrant. And I think the connection was my dad was an immigrant, he was an immigrant, he liked the idea that I was the son of an immigrant. He had two daughters, he had no sons. I look back now and I know I was the son he didn't have. Gustav von Ries's daughter married the son of the founder of Goldman Sachs. But the bottom line is, Gus had this land his son-in-law, Arthur Alshul from Goldman Sachs, I mean, I knew Goldman Sachs, don't kid me, you know. And I mean, I knew I was up against a brick wall, basically. Arthur didn't want this dumb Swede to do a deal with this immigrant kid from Grand Rapids. And he tried his level best to uh, not have me do a deal, including Arthur had a friend in the oil business in Oklahoma by the name of Bill Clary. And Arthur said to Bill, would you go up to Michigan and interview this guy and uh, tell me if he's legit and, you know, I want to get the goods on him so that hopefully Gus will do the deal with somebody else. And he knew who he wanted to do the deal with, and I won't use the name. And so Bill Cleary calls me up and says, well, Sid, I'm come, I can come in next week. I'll fly in in his own plane, which I thought was cool. And so can you meet me on whatever? Of course, I could meet him whenever he came. So he flies and I pick him up. I took him out to the land. Bill and I sat across this little dinky table in this motorhome, and Bill was a self-made man. I was a young self-made man. I didn't have anything, but I was doing it as good as I could do it. He realized that, and he said, all right, I'll recommend that you can run the seismic. Seismic is sending sound waves to underground rock formations and analyzing the time it takes the waves to bounce back giving them valuable information about rock types and the possible gases or liquids in rock formations. It's similar to the use of ultrasound technology with babies in the womb, except with a lot more money on the line. But I'm not going to tell you what interest you're going to have because this has to work out with the whole family and Arthur's asked me to come here and talk to you, but I'll recommend that you should organize and get the seismic run. Well, I needed an oil and gas lease. To really own it and benefit from it. And uh, he said, you're not going to get an oil and gas lease. That would give me the right to drill. I said, no, I'll, I'm, I'll, you run it and Gus is going to pay for it. I mean, that was a bad news deal because if I just managed it and didn't have any money in it, they'd owe me nothing. That's how it came down. So I managed the geophysics and I got the interpreter to, in to interpret it. and. Lo and behold, there was several things worth drilling on that land. So I get a call from Bill Cleary saying, well, we've got the geophysics back. It looks pretty interesting. And 
they decided that they wanted to meet me in Oklahoma City the day after Thanksgiving in 1971. And so I had to go down to Oklahoma City that morning. I was able to get a flight. I wasn't flying private, by the way. We looked at the seismic and had the geophysical interpreter in there, and we were all quite impressed. And then Bill took me in his office again, and he said, well, looks pretty good. And everybody thought, there's some real money there. I mean, I'm talking real money. I said, yeah, it does look good. He said, I I'm going to recommend that you have a one-eighth interest in this deal. So the family was keeping seven-eighths. One-eighth. It cost me $12,500, which my dad and I just had. I mean, what I'm saying is that was our entire budget for exploration. He said to me, what are you going to do with it if you have one-eighth? Are you going to take in partners? I looked him in the eye and I said, if I have one-eighth of this deal, I will not take in a partner. I'll own it myself and drill the well. And if it's good, fine. If it's dry, I've paid my money. He said, okay, I, I like that. So he said, all right, we're going to have to go to Florida to ink this deal. So we go to Florida two weeks later to Gus's home on Deerfield Beach. It's called the Deerfield Mile. Gus's next door neighbor was Mrs. Weyerhauser. One of the largest owners of timberland in the world. Who he introduced me to. I met Mrs. Weyerhauser. I was 25 years old, I think, just awestruck. And Gus's friend, it was a guy by the name of Ingemar Johansson, another Swede, but he was the heavyweight champion of the world. And Gus mentioned that Ingemar had just left, and I'm glad you're here, Sid. And I mean, I was just blown away. I got an oil and gas lease right there on their dining room table. And I walked out of there. I remember getting on the plane to go home and thinking, wow, I really got something. Now I didn't know it was going to be any good. An exploration well like that would have been about a 10% success of probability. Quite a gamble. <laughs> You're literally talking about all of your money on the line. That's right. And, and But that was our business, and it was a calculated risk. We drilled it in December of 1971, and uh, in January of 72 it came in and it was a beautiful oil discovery. It produced 100,000 barrels a year for at least five years in a row. So, I mean, that paid my dad's and my salary and a whole lot of stuff, I mean, and then I went on from there. Then came the real big time. Partnering with New York financiers, then selling his company in 2000 to the Virginia Energy Giant, Dominion Resources, and then three years later, getting that phone call from Chevron about some Utah land of theirs that they were trying to get rid of. And here's what they told Sid. We drilled a couple wells. We drilled one in 19... 57 and I think in 1980 something and only a major can afford to own the same oil and gas lease for 50 years you know and for me if I own a lease I look at it and say I'm going to develop this lease or I'm going to get rid of it because I don't want to keep paying on it so no the majors just owned it and he said we have some seismic on it and um my guys don't want to drill it. The, the, the guys, the technical guys want to drill it, but the management won't let them drill it because they don't have all their ducks in a row. And when we come back, more of this terrific story, Sid Jansma's story, an American Dreamer's story, 
here on Our American Story. stories and we're back with the final portion of this fantastic American Dreamers story on Sid Jansma Jr. And when we left off, this small oil man got a call from a big old oil company called Chevron about some Utah land of theirs that they are trying to get rid of. So I said, all right, I'll send my exploration manager down to look at what you've got. But if we do a deal, I have to have all of your technical work and all of your seismic. I need all the raw data because I need to process it myself. I need all the stuff that you've got. He said, sure, if we sell it to you, you can have that. So I called my exploration manager. His name was Doug Strickland. He went and looked at the technical data and he called me up and he said, wow. He said, these seismic lines show a beautiful underground hill that could very well have oil and gas in it. And it's a thrust play, which means the rocks that were at one time competently laying flat have now broken and one of the flat sides has slid up on the other flat side. And that's how mountains are made. And when you have this break, you create a lot of things, uh, things happening. And one of the things you create is you create rock that's broken up that could have spaces in it where oil and gas could get. So that's what we were thinking. Okay, well, they could have that. So then the issue was, well, where would the oil and gas have come from? Which could give you a hint of how big of a find you might be looking at. In the oil business, that's called the sourcing problem. What's the source? Because it just isn't everywhere. You've got to figure out where did it come from. Their company had done a sourcing study, but they had never finished it. So we hired two professors out of the University of Utah to do a sourcing study for us, and it took us three years. And we found the Chainman Shale in Utah had a certain type of oil in it. We tested the oil, and it had a certain isotope. It's chemical makeup. In Colorado over here, there was a field called the Rangeley Field, a billion barrel field. We tested that oil, it had a certain kind of oil, with the same isotope that was in the Chainman Shale over here. And then we went to the outcrop. Utah has an outcrop of a, of a sand that weeps oil. We tested that oil. It was the same isotope as these other two. So we had a situation where our prospect was in the middle of three tests that had the same oil. And the oil came from the Chainman. So the oil had to migrate from the Chainman to Rangeley, and it migrated from the Chainman over here to this outcrop, and it, this thing was right in the middle. Well, it was like, wow. So we actually showed that prospect to 65 oil companies around the United States. We had all the technical data, and I'd have my geologist and geophysicist and engineer going on the trips. And, Oh, and we, and we showed some companies looked at it twice, and one company looked at it three times. 
But it took us almost three years, and finally um, I got it sold. I, I sold three quarters of it, we kept a quarter. But why would you sell any of it? If there's a ton of oil there, you could get 100% of the profits from it. Why would you reduce your profit potential to 25%? This business is very risky. I mean, today and then even, I could have afforded to drill the well on my own. I said to my son, Sid, who's in business with me today, when he came on almost 25 years ago, I said to him, Sid, I've made more money owning a quarter interest in an oil well than I have 100%. Because I have drilled wells 100% because they're so good and this one isn't gonna, this one isn't gonna miss. And then they do. I've been there. And so the truth is, no, you hedge your risk. Then we drill the well. We were drilling that well, and I got a call. I got a call on about the 21st of December. He said, well, um, we've just hit some rock that's got some hardened oil in it. It's bitumen is what it's called. It's the residue of oil. Oil was once there, but is gone, and it leaves a residue, and it's called bitumen. And I was, oh, that's interesting. So just let me know how it goes on it. So that was around the 21st. And then I got, then the next day, they were still drilling that stuff. And I said, well, did you, did you take a little piece of that stuff and check the isotope? I mean, what isotope was that? Well, they got it. They got it to the engineer who was skiing somewhere, because this was Christmas holiday. Got him off the slope, get that thing to the lab and figure out. Then I got a call on December 24, two o'clock in the afternoon, and the call was, we're not drilling any bitumen anymore. And yes, it's got the same isotope as the chainman. We logged the well and my engineer called me from the well site and he almost couldn't talk. And he said, Sid, you can't believe it. This, this is a huge oil discovery. I said, oh, what do you think? He said, this well will make five million barrels if it makes a barrel. I said, wow. So. Um, that was a few days, that was between Christmas and New Year. And so I got my whole team together and got them out to Richfield, Utah. And I said, now bring all your maps because what we're gonna do, if we're successful here, this is now an oil discovery, 140 miles away from anything. Every, the whole industry was shocked to find oil there. I said, if that works, there's gotta be other of these things around here. Because we, on our seismic, we saw other little bumps like that. I had them sitting on December 30 in the uh, Hampton Inn in Richfield, Utah on I-15. We were throwing maps all over the place saying, well, it could be here, could be here, could be there. And we made rectangles of these. And I said to my land manager, I want 20 people out here the day after New Year's. I want to start leasing land here. And um, sometime during the month of January, we ended up having 20 people there. and. I owned 80,000 acres when I drilled the Discovery and we just kept it quiet. We didn't say anything. And over the course of the next year, we leased another 400,000 acres. Now, we didn't know how good the well was. I mean, really, the engineer said to me, but I, I've been around long enough to know, I mean, it looks good here, but how do you know how big it is? We had no idea. We had no idea. And, and, and there wasn't anything else around, so we had no idea saying that it could be big but um, it wasn't until a year and a half later we drilled the confirmation well a mile away from the discovery and got the same pay zone there. And that's when we realized 
We had a huge discovery on our hands. It was a year and a half later. What was then the largest oil discovery in the continental United States in 30 years. And he named this discovery, this field, Covenant. If you're a, a follower of Jesus, the word covenant means a lot. Uh, God made a covenant with the Hebrews. God made a covenant here and there. God actually has a covenant with me to be my God. And that word, the word covenant is a beautifully freighted uh, religious word. And uh, it just means that we've got an agreement together. An oil guy who's also a God guy. A story that you've probably never heard from the media before. This society that we're living in today and for the last 75 years is the hydrocarbon society. Um, oil and gas has been fueling all of our transportation by and large. A lot of the energy things that we're doing, including the clothes that we're wearing, are, are oil or gas related. I mean, polyethylene and so forth, all of it. We all take so many things for granted until we really realize what we got. And we just need to understand that we're really blessed to have all this stuff that we can use. But we have a responsibility. And one of our responsibilities too is if you have a lot of money, you need to be thinking about why do you have all this money? You're not going to take it with you. So what are you going to do with it? I've faced that issue and I've made the decision that I want to give my money away while I'm living rather than have you give it away for me after I'm dead. We don't have any desire to have our name on a building or whatever. And I am not knocking anybody for giving and having their name on a building. That's wonderful. It can inspire other people to give. And also it's a testimony of, well, if so-and-so likes that institution, it must be pretty good. It must be okay. And so that's okay, but that wasn't us. But what we do do is we will have a rock and on that rock there will be a statement and the statement will say God has been good to us we've experienced his goodness and we've experienced his guidance as he says um, I'll never leave you and forsake you therefore as stewards of everything we have we are glad to support this project right here and we'll name it because we're helping these people and we're honoring the God who gave us the resources. And, it has, and no one have a clue. No one will have a clue that it's us at all. But what I know for sure is in 25 years, when all these people are gone, no one will know in 25 years that it's us at all. But what they will know is that somebody believed that God was real and that Jesus Christ was God's son. And for that reason, they were a steward of their things. They'll know that. And what a story, and we love telling these stories, these American Dreamer stories. Family businesses that turn into bigger businesses, all the good that gets done because of that growth, all of the jobs that get created, all the wealth that gets created. And time and again, we keep hearing the same story. These people, they give that wealth away. Big businesses, mid-sized businesses, the philanthropic strain in this country is deep, generosity even deeper. Grand Rapids, by the way, is the 125th biggest market in this country, but it's the 13th most generous city. And that's really remarkable. We should dig into that. Just a story on Grand Rapids itself one day. Those are remarkable numbers. Sid Jansma's story, his family's story, here 
on Our American Stories. American stories and that chopping sound well you know what it is even if you don't and that's Bugs Bunny and our next story is an unforgettable tale about an American icon whose voice everyone recognizes here's Greg Hengler If you added up all the hours from your childhood, chances are the voice of Mel Blanc made up the majority of dialogue spoken to you. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety, Sylvester, Yosemite Sam, Foghorn Leghorn, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzalez, Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner, Elmer Fudd, Barney Rubble, Tom and Jerry, Woody Woodpecker, and the Tasmanian Devil to name just a few of Blank's voice contributions. This man embodied a sense of innocence and good nature and was so adored and respected that all who knew him had something to say about him. For the sake of time, I won't be introducing all those who contributed to this story. They are fellow animators, inkers, and painters from Warner Brothers, Disney and Hanna-Barbera, animation and film historians, directors, voice artists like Hank Azaria from The Simpsons, Mel's former agents, film critics, his son Noel, and friends such as Kirk Douglas. Without any further ado, let's jump right into the story of Mel Blanc, the man of a thousand voices. Allow me to introduce myself. Mel Blanc. What an amazing guy. What's up, Doc? <laughs> oh, goody! You can't look at the Warner Brothers characters without hearing his sound, his voice. Launch! There's such a delight to the sound of his voice in every character he did. What'd I say? What'd I say? Think about it today that everybody imitates these characters. He created them. Gosh, what a screwy duck. That, my little cherub, is strictly a matter of opinion. Mel was so unique at what he did. Mel had the range that everyone wishes for. Yahoo! <laughs> Great horny toads! I'm up north! <laughs> Gotta burn my boots! They touched Yankee soil! I think it was a shock when I got older to discover all those voices were one man. His voice was like more powerful than a human body could contain. Open that bridge, Farman! Open it, I say! <laughs> So it seemed to be coming out of every part of him. Mel Blanc had this phenomenal voice box. It's the only way I can explain it. He just did all kinds of things that were just amazing. 
He didn't just do voices. He played characters, and there's a difference. I think I've got it. He was just able to do that, to just totally, like, you know, animate with his voice, to create a complete three-dimensional character just with his voice alone. I say, that's no chicken, son. I'm a chicken. Rooster, that is. How can you beat a pair of vocal cords that had an eight-octave range, perfect pitch, great singer, and an incredible actor? There's Mel, and there's, like, everybody else. There was nobody better than Mel Blanc. Buenas noches. You know where is it, a cat? Howdy doody. <laughs> About that egg. Melvin Jerome Blank was born the youngest of two children on May 30th, 1908 in San Francisco to Russian Jewish parents, Frederick and Eva. After leaving New York to seek his fortune prospecting for gold in the Klondike region of the Alaskan Yukon, his father eventually settled the family down in Portland, Oregon. As a young boy growing up in the melting pot of the American West, Mel Blank would forever be affected by the medley of foreign accents and the way voices define personalities. My dad was always interested in voices and in music and in singing and in entertaining. He started to entertain in grammar school. From around about the age of 10, Mel Blanc was um, very interested in dialects, Yiddish dialects and Chinese and Japanese dialects, Russian. The school would have an assembly, the grammar school. I would entertain the kids with a dialect story or one of the diff a different dialect each time. And uh, the kids loved it, and they got such a big kick out of it. They laughed, and the teachers laughed, and then gave me lousy marks. <laughs> Here's what Mel wrote in his autobiography, That's Not All, Folks. Except for music class, I loathed school. To be truthful, report cards C's and D's had little to no effect on me, but that applause. What an impression it made on a 12-year-old. Now, where'd that boy go? You gotta be a magician to keep a kid's attention more than two minutes nowadays. My talents weren't appreciated by all. In particular, a crotchety old teacher by the name of Washburn. When I broke up a classroom discussion by giving an answer in four different voices, she reprimanded me sternly. Too sternly, if you ask me. Oh, Shut up! You'll never amount to anything. She said scornfully, You're just like your last name, blank. Her stinging insult so shamed me that when I was 16, I started spelling my surname with a C, B-L-A-N-C, instead of a K. Later, as an adult, I changed it legally. I often wondered if Mrs. Washburn associated Mel Blank with the young student she had ridiculed so many years before. He dropped out of high school in about the ninth grade. Yeah, he used to say, I got lousy grades, but uh, I, I developed some great voices because of the echo in the school in the hallways. He started leading orchestras. He was an orchestra conductor, and the orchestras moved all around the Oregon area and the Washington area and Northern California area. In between when he was conducting the music, he would do shtick. He'd do different voices and different comedy routines. Mel was the youngest orchestra leader in the country at that time, at 17. And when we come back, more on the life of Mel Blank. And by the way, if you're a teacher, if you're an adult, think about how you're talking to kids. More on this remarkable American story here on Our American Stories. 
wabbit. What would you want with a wabbit? Can't you see that I'm much sweeter? I'm your little senorita. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Mel Blanc. Let's pick up where we left off. I think my dad never thought of Hollywood when he was young. He thought of going on the radio when radio was quite new at that time. Well, Mel came from the world of vaudeville and radio. A world that's that has long disappeared. Most people don't even know what it was like. In those days, radio was a much bigger business than than movies. I mean, people forget that that radio was the single most driving force in you know American popular culture. And of course, radio is ideal for a, you know, a schooling for someone who was going to do cartoon voices. In 1932, with the blessing of his parents, he jumped into his 1920 Ford Model A convertible and drove south to Los Angeles hoping to find a break. Instead, he met a young woman named Estelle Rosenbaum, a bright and attractive girl with a radiant smile who would become his biggest supporter for the rest of his life. She also shared Mel's deep interest in radio. Mel, 24, and Estelle, 22, married that spring and then proceeded up Route 101 back to Portland to write, produce, and perform their own sketch radio show called Cobwebs and Nuts. To maintain audience interest six hours a week, Mel had to come up with countless voices and lots of material, which was then presented to Mel's one-woman audience for approval. My dad played a hundred different male characters, my mother played all the different female characters, and uh, they had a great time, although they were only paid $15 a week to write it, produce it, and voice it. The show failed to provide a livable wage for the blanks. So Mel seriously considered quitting in order to become an insurance salesman at a whopping $50 a week. Thanks to Estelle's encouragement, he rejected the offer and followed his dreams and talents back to Los Angeles in 1935. Here are Estelle's exact words. Mel, if we're going to be broke, at least let's be broke someplace where it's warm. I had seen some of the Warner Brother voices, sort of, or heard some of the voices on the in the cartoons, and I thought, geez, they're they're missing out on an awful lot. The voices are pretty bad. Usually, Norman Spencer was there to greet him. I said, I'd like to audition for you and show you what I can do. He says, Sorry, we've got all the voices we need. I said, But Mr. Schlesinger said that you were the one. He says, No, I'm sorry. Well, I was as stubborn as he was, and I went back in two weeks and I said, Look, won't you just listen to me? He says, I told you, we have all the voices we need. So I was still as stubborn as him, and I went to him every two weeks asking him to please listen to me. And he says, I told you a hundred times, I've got all the voices we need. So he kept knocking on the door for two years. Finally, in March of 1937, Mel's perseverance paid off. It was probably the week before Christmas. He came looking for a job, and that day, Treg Brown was sitting there. Treg Brown, brilliant sound effects man for the Warner's cartoons. He happened to take over when this fellow passed away that wouldn't let my dad in the door. And I said, Mr. Brown, I've been trying to get in here to audition, just have him hear me. But the guy kept saying, no, uh, I've got all the voices we need. 
He says, well, let me hear what you do. So I auditioned for him, and he got a big kick out of it. He said, would you do it again for the directors? I said, gladly. Warner Brothers decided to give Mel a shot in a supporting role for Picador Porky, a new cartoon animated by a 25-year-old lanky kid named Chuck Jones, featuring the studio's latest character, Porky Pig. He said, uh, I've got a cartoon coming up with a drunken bull. Do you think you can do the voice of a drunken bull? So I said, yeah, I think I could. He says, how would he talk? I have a hammer talk like it was a little, and we were looking for the looking looking for for the sour match. He says, "Great, great." He says, "What are you doing next Tuesday?" I wasn't doing the damn thing. I said, "I think I can make her." Warner Brothers quickly recognized Mel's talent and offered him the prized role of Porky Pig. They says he's a timid little character. I told him, well, I want to be real authentic about it. So I went out to a pig farm and wallowed around with the pigs for a couple of weeks. And I come back and they kicked me out to go home and take a bath. When I did, I come back, I said, if a pig could talk, he'd talk with a grunt, you know. Oi, 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 that's the way Porky talk, with a grunt. They said, oh, great, great. In that same cartoon, he introduced a, a kind of embryonic version of Daffy Duck. <laughs> Don't let it worry you, Skipper. I'm just a crazy darn fool duck. <laughs> now, here's a guy suddenly doing the craziest, most energetic voices they've ever had in one cartoon, and I think that that's when they suddenly thought, I think we're going to hang on to this guy. It was Porky Pig and Daffy Duck that put Leon Schlesinger's Warner Brothers Cartoon Company and Mel on the map. But it was another character, a cool, sly, and wise-cracking rabbit with a flair for survival named Bugs Bunny who would become his most famous and unforgettable creation. Bugs made his cartoon debut on July 27, 1940 in an 8-minute and 15-second short titled A Wild Hare. They showed me a picture of this little rabbit, and he's going to say, hey, what's cooking? I said, instead of him saying, hey, what's cooking, why don't you have him say, hey, uh, what's up, Yonk? That's the, the new uh, expression that was uh, being so popular. And I said to Mr. Schlesinger, I said, why don't you name him after the guy who drew the first picture of him? His name was Bugs Hardaway. Why don't you call him Bugs Bunny? What's up, Doc? It's a wabbit down there, and I'm trying to catch him. Well, they told me that Bugs was a tough little stinker, and I thought, what kind of a voice can I give him? The tough character, maybe Brooklyn of the Bronx. So uh, I put the two of them together, Doc, and that's how Bugs Bunny came out. Pardon me, but you know, you were just like a wabbit. Uh, come here. Listen, Doc. Now, don't spread this around, but, uh... Confidentially, I am a rabbit! The film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Short Subject, Cartoons. Over the next 20 years, Mel would give life to nearly the entire cast of Looney Tunes characters. 
what I am. I might be the Scarlet Pumpernickel. Daffy is not a lisp. People say Daffy lisp. No, he is spraying the water out of the <laughs> lips. It's not a lisp, by the way. I thought I caught a itty bitty pudding cat. Tweety was a little baby bird. So I gave him a little tiny baby voice. Ooh, I thought I caught a pudding cat. And Sylvester was a big sloppy cat. So I gave him a big sloppy voice. Speedy Gonzalez was a little tiny mouse. And he had to talk fast because his name was Speedy. So I gave him a very fast little voice like this. My name is Speedy Gonzalez. I did just wait for him to give it to the mouse. I think. See, he talks so fast you can hardly understand what he says. I think. Just to think, radiant flower. You do not have to come with me to the Casbah. We are already here. He chased the pussycat and catch them and kiss them. I gave him more or less of a French voice, like so, a voila. And uh, I said all the French words wrong, you know. Now all of you skunks, clear out of here! Yosemite Sam, they showed me he was a little cowboy. And he was only two feet tall with long red hair and had to be recognized. So I had to give him a, a recognizable voice. So I gave him a real loud voice, like so. My name's Yosemite Sam. <coughs> this is one that almost gets me every time I use it. Other studios called upon Mel for his one-of-a-kind talent. MGM and Walt Disney were quick to offer roles. But perhaps his most famous non-Warner Brothers voice was Woody Woodpecker, which he created in 1940. And I remembered in school that I had a crazy laugh. I used to do it in, in the school, in the high school, and run down to the end of the hall to hear the echo. It would just echo all the way around, never knowing that this would turn out to be the voice of Woody Woodpecker. Just, <laughs> Just added that little pecking at the end. And when we come back, more on the life of Mel Blanc. And he was so lucky. I mean, he had a wife, Estelle, who said, if we're going to be broke, let's at least be broke someplace where we're going to be warm. What a lucky guy. And also, bumping into a man named Chuck Jones is pretty good luck, too. More on the life of Mel Blanc, his remarkable story, here on Our American Stories. Duck hunting's all the rage and they won't let me be. And I'm so full of bullets, I'm lit up like a Christmas tree. Wabbitwax. And you just can't help but smile, and we return to the story of Mel Blanc, and we're about to pick up where we just left off. But of all the characters Mel created, Bugs remain the fan favorite, and it's easy to see why. Arriving on the screen shortly before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Bugs became a symbol of American strength in the face of the enemy. The quintessential yank. The tall man with the high hat will be coming down your way. Get your savings out when you hear him shout. And he bonds today. Come on and get him, folks. Come on, skip right up and get him. Because of what was happening in Europe and, and, and the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, audiences just found his sassy control of the situation just so heroic. Coolness in the face of danger. Damn. What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? Listen, stranger, 
This town ain't big enough for the two of us. It ain't. The Blanks gave birth to their only child on October 19, 1938, a son named Noel. This stretched the Blank household budget to the breaking point. At his wife's urging, Mel decided to ask for a salary increase from the tight-fisted, savvy head of Warner Brothers cartoons, Leon Schlesinger. Hello, Parky. Come on in. Hello, Leon. Well, Parky, what's on your mind? What can I do for you? What Schlesinger offered Mel was unprecedented for any voice actor to date. Soul screen credit on every cartoon produced by the studio. <laughs> when his voice characterization by Mel Blanc went up on screen in the early 40s, it's the same time that the radio people started utilizing his name in the credits. Jack Benny started to put him into the credits. Abbott and Costello, George Burns, Gracie Allen, Dagwood and Blondie, Amos and Andy. He was on every show, Jack Carson, Joe Penner, and they started to use his name at the end of the credits. Also on tonight's show were so-and-so, so-and-so, and Mel Blanc. Mel was modest about his fame, and he enjoyed his private life. He made friends with everyone he worked with, but it was his friendship with Jack Benny that Mel cherished most. Wednesday night used to be ping-pong night. So ping-pong night used to get all the people that were on the radio show, uh, Lucille Ball and George Burns, Gracie Allen, and Jack Benny and Jack Carson, they'd all come out and play ping-pong. My dad would make them soda fountain drinks, and then they'd go home. Mel is thought of as just a voice man, but he was so much more. His timing was outstanding. You know, you can be, you can be a comic, and if you, can't, if you don't have the timing down, you have the best material in the world, it's meaningless. For the fingers and clumsy, the world's foremost jugglers, Fearless Freep and his sensational high-diving act. Fearless Freep, that's my boy! It's the acting. People say, oh, Mel Blanc, the man of a thousand voices, greatest voice man that ever lived. One of the best actors to ever come out of Hollywood. People don't take the voice person as seriously as they would like the, the Olivier's or Dustin Hoffman, De Niro, but, you know, to say, you know, Olivier, De Niro, Blanc. It sounds weird because of what genre he worked in. But, no, he was a brilliant actor. Say, now I won't be able to get the bird. Oh, Mr. Pudgy Cat, don't you like me anymore? I, I think, I think, I, I think you're, I think you're delicious! I'll tell you what I think Mel Blanc's geni most genius achievement was, and only if you're a voice actor do you realize how incredible this is. When Bugs and Daffy are fighting over whether it's rabbit season or duck season, and Daffy Duck comes out dressed up as Bugs Bunny doing a Bugs Bunny imitation, then Bugs Bunny comes out dressed as Daffy doing a Daffy impression. What's up, Doc? Having any luck on those ducks? It's duck season, you know. Just a darn minute. Where do you get that duck season stuff? You know how hard that is to do, to take your own character, have it imitate another one of your own characters? It's almost impossible. Because if you try to, like, combine two voices that you're doing, you kind of just land in the middle. Like, if I try to do Apu imitating Mo, it'll sound just like Mo imitating Apu. There's no... We tried it one day at The Simpsons. We were talking about how we were marveling at Mel Blanc's ability to do this. And we all tried to do 
one of our characters imitating another one and have them sound different, and we couldn't do it. You know what you'll do with that gun, Doc. I'd say, you know, Dad, you're an incredible actor. I said, here's a picture signed by Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. It says, to the greatest actor I know, Mel Blanc. I said, Jack Benny used to call you a great actor. Did you know you were a great actor? He says, no, no, I'm not really. I'm a voice person. But he didn't realize that was acting. He never took an acting lesson. In all of his cartoons, when Mel wasn't performing all the voices, his chemistry with his fellow actors was apparent. None more so than with Arthur Q. Bryan, the voice behind Bugs' adversary, Elmer Fudd. Here's Brian and Blank rehearsing in the studio for the 6 minute and 49 second cartoon classic released in theaters on July 6, 1957, What's Opera Doc? The bit we just heard bumping in after the commercial break. The short is informally referred to as Kill the Wabbit, after the lines sung by Fudd to the tune of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. I will do it with my spear and magic helmet. Your spear and magic helmet? Spear and magic helmet. Magic helmet? Helmet! Magic helmet? Magic, yes. What's <clears throat> It's a shame. That was going well. Really, almost I don't happened. think I'm right yet, and I'm going to kill the rabbit, am I? That's a fine. That's fine. Okay, kill it. In 1994, 1,000 members of the animation industry ranked What's Opera Doc? number one on the list of 50 greatest cartoons of all time. Mel and Arthur acted out the combative relationship between Bugs and the tiptoeing, shotgun-wielding Elmer in over 30 cartoons over the span of 20 years until Arthur's passing at the age of 60 in 1959. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting wabbits. (laughs) The classic voice of Elmer Fudd needed a replacement. Chris Freeling, one of the directors, said to me, uh, Mel, will you do a couple of lines for uh, for Elmer Fudd? He says, I've tried others and they can't come close. He said, just can you do a couple of lines? I said, oh, I don't why, but I don't know if I could do it or not. <laughs> he says, that's it. So I also became Elmer Fudd. Whereas audiences felt sorry for the witless Elmer Fudd, the pint-sized, pea-brained, ornery hombre named Yosemite Sam evoked no sympathy at all. He was conceived as a more challenging adversary for Bugs Bunny. That's who I am! You don't say! Well, come here, shorty, come here. You don't say I told you, but uh, there's a guy in the next car that says he's the meanest, toughest, etc., etc., and he's got a seven-shooter to prove it. How's about that? There is! Wall blast the moment wide open! Yosemite Sam! It's Yosemite Sam! Yosemite Sam! Yeah, Yosemite Sam! The roughest, toughest He-Man, stuffest hombre has ever crossed the Rio Grande! I'm the fastest gun north, south, east, and west of the Pecos! I'm the... Yeah, shit it! Did I hear someone say shut up? Yep. I'm giving you one second to draw a gun. How's that, Chunky? Say, that's a right smart picture you got there, partner. You know, I'm fair to middling with a pencil myself. Look at here. Quit looking over my shoulder. It bothers me. 
By the late 1950s, Mel was on top of the world. And when we come back, the final installment of this hour-long celebration of the life of Mel Blanc, his story continues here on Our American Stories. What have I done? I've killed the rabbit. Poor widow bunny. Poor widow rabbit. <laughs> Welcome to my shop. Let me cut your mop. Let me save your crop. Daintily, daintily. Hey, you. Don't look so perplexed. Why must you be vexed? Can't you see you're next? Yes, you're next. You're so next. How about a nice close shave? Teach your whiskers to behave. Lots of leather, lots of soap. Please hold still, don't be a dope. Now we're ready for the scraping. There's no use to try escaping. Yell and scream and rant and rave. It's no use, you need a shave. Ooh, ouch, ouch, ooh, ouch, ooh, ooh, ouch. And you're nice and clean. Although your face looks like it might have gone through a machine. And this is our American Stories, the last part of this terrific story about the one, the only, Mel Blanc. Although he never personally won an Academy Award, his voice earned Warner Brothers five Oscars. Then, on the night of January 24th, 1961, this happened. My mom called me. I was with friends. She says, Dad didn't show up at the recording session. She says, wait a minute. The other phone is ringing. We had two lines. It was UCLA Hospital saying that he had been involved in a head-on collision on Dead Man's Curve, right above UCLA, and they had taken him to UCLA after they had, cut to, they had to use a cutting torch to get him out of the Aston Martin. It happened that a kid driving a, a 98 Oldsmobile, a great big car, ran into a small Aston Martin sports car, and it just folded up. They didn't expect him to live for the first 12, 13 days. I went to see him, and it was really, um, I, I was shocked because he was wired up with all kinds of gadgets to keep him together. Noel told me that almost every bone in his body was broken. He was unconscious for a long time. Finally, a doctor got an idea because my dad had a television in his room and it was playing Bugs Bunny cartoons. So the doctor went over to the bed and clapped his hands and said, Bugs, can you hear me? Bugs, can you hear me? My dad goes, what's up, Doc? The first words that he uttered were of Bugs. Then he says, Porky, can you hear me? And he would answer me, I can, I can hear you. So he brought him around doing the characters' voices before my dad was fully awake as, as himself. Blank continued working for Warner Brothers, but also began providing voices for television cartoons produced by Hanna-Barbera. His most famous role during this time was Barney Rubble from the Flintstones. Oh boy, wait till Fred sees my new bowling ball. It'll bring my score up to at least 100. And of course he was Mr. Spacely in the Jetsons. Send up Jetson, Miss Gamma. Yes, sir. Ready, Mr. Jetson? Right. Well, good luck. Fire! 
but I don't think any of the characters he did in the later years of his life uh, had the staying power of anywhere near the staying power of the uh, immortal Looney Tune characters. Everywhere you go, everybody knows to love Bugs Bunny. They don't know Mel Blanc, but they know Bugs Bunny, and everybody knows that. I cannot tell you the quantity of fan mail he received, and something really, really phenomenal about him. That man answered every piece of correspondence personally. He would call people. He'd get a letter. Oh, it's my daughter's birthday. She's turning 12. Her favorite character is Tweety Bird. It would be so terrific, sir. You know, if you ever have time, could you call my daughter? And Mel would call these people from all over the world and literally wish them happy birthday or happy anniversary or whatever the, the, the celebration was. When he lived in Playa del Rey or Pacific Palisades, kids would come over every day and say, Mel, can we have your autograph? Do some voices. And we'd have kids at the door, I mean, literally every day. Halloween, we'd have 1,500 to 2,000 kids. And he'd give out signed little autographs and candy. The kids would always go to Mel and Estelle's house because they never knew who was going to answer the door. You know, Bugs or Porky or Peppy or Daffy or Wiley or Roadrunner. You never know. So it was, it was great to watch that. It was really, really wonderful. Here's legend of Hollywood's golden age, Kirk Douglas. The longer I'm in this business, the more I feel that we, we really are very lucky people. Because in a strange way, we attain immortality. And if you judge immortality by the pleasure that you've given to others, I would certainly say that Mel Blanc is one of the greatest of the immortals. He devoted a lot of time in burn units um, for ailing children. And I think he really had a great effect in doing so. And even if it made him feel better for just a minute, he did. We had to try to get him to leave, first of all. I mean, he would spend all day doing it. I mean, there would be times I would say, you know, Mel, we've got to go. It's getting dark, you know, we've, we've got to get back on the road. And when there were children and children, you know, in that situation, he, um, you couldn't get him to walk away. If I saw a person smile, that to me was payment in itself. And, and uh, uh, if I could make them laugh when they had been very sad, it, it was great payment to me. Thanks, Jennifer, for helping us tell the story. Thank you, bud. Oh. <laughs> On May 30th, 1988, Mel Blanc turned 80. Who Framed Roger Rabbit premiered that year, and Blanc contributed many voices to the summer blockbuster. A huge party was thrown by Warner Brothers on its Burbank lot. And again, Mel was asked the same question he had been asked every birthday since he turned 65. Mel, when are you going to retire? Mel's answer? The day I drop. That's when. Who'd want to quit making people laugh? On July 1989, when he agreed to star in a new commercial for Oldsmobile, Neither he nor his son, Noel, would know that this would be his final performance. 
Here's Noel and Mel bantering inside the Cutlass Sierra in between takes. You'll hear Noel doing his father's character's voices too. Growing up, Mel trained Noel on the voices so that when the time came, he could take over for his father. Is that any, is that any good? Yeah, we are the new generation of olds? Yes. Yeah, that's pretty good. We're the new generation of olds. The director there is out pulling his hair, but we're going to do this commercial anyhow. What hair? <laughs> oh, he's got it. <laughs> it's that one. It's not the art director. Well, how would Yosemite Sam say this? We are the new generation of olds. In, look, in the, look at the dealer right there and talk to him. We are the new generation of old. Now you heard that, you better believe it. We are, and we're going to try to do this commercial, but it's tough. Anyway, we got this director. Tough, he says. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> We've only been on in about 27 hours. We had shot the Oldsmobile commercial all day. It's not your father's Oldsmobile. And uh, I said, Dad, uh, you're coughing a little bit. Why don't you go to the doctor and get your lungs cleared out? The doctor called me and said, yeah, Mel's over here. And the doctor says, well, I can keep him in the hospital overnight or just give him a, a, some, an inhaler to get the cough out of it. My dad said, no, let's stay in the hospital overnight. It was a mistake, of course. He fell out of bed. They forgot to put the bed rails up. He broke his femur, got fed emboli into the brain, and was basically gone in 48 hours. He was still at the height of his career. He could still do all the voices that he could before, and he was still really terrific. Mel Blanc lays to rest in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Under a Star of David, the epitaph on Blanc's tombstone reads, That's all, folks. Mel Blanc has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 6385 Hollywood Boulevard. He is the only person to have himself and two of his characters on the Walk of Fame, with both Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker receiving a star. The only others to have received this honor are Walt Disney as both himself and Mickey Mouse, Jim Henson as both himself and Kermit the Frog, and Mike Myers as both himself and Shrek. Mel Blanc is one of the pillars of entertainment, an actor whose talents can still be marveled at today. My dad's legacy is laughter. He wanted to make people feel good and laugh out loud. The thing I miss most about my dad is my dad and his personality, being the great father, listening to me, never doubting me, asking good questions, being great to my mom. The fact that he was such a, a marvelous human being, not only to the world, but to his family, that's what I remember most. I can turn his voice on any time and see one of the cartoons. So I can really bring him back to life at any time I want to. I hear his voice every day. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And... Suppose I was a smelly skunk, I wouldn't have a friend. I'd be alone excepting for a cent I couldn't spend. Suppose I was a gator in the swamps where time would drag. Until the day when I'd be made into a traveling bag. So I'm glad to be the way I am. Who cares if I look funny? No matter what the others have, I'm glad that I'm Bugs Bunny. Suppose I was a turkey, then I'd end up on a tray In the middle of the table on the next Thanksgiving day Suppose I 
was a bullfrog croaking out a note. I dread the time when I would be a frog in someone's throat. So I'm glad to be the way I am. Who cares if I look funny? No matter what the others have, I'm glad that I'm Bugs Bunny. Yeah.